You're listening to this Sunday's sermon from Hope Church RVA. To find out more about Hope, plan your next visit, or support the work we're doing in Richmond and beyond, visit HopeChurchRVA.com. Good morning. So happy 4th of July. I'm always inspired by the opening words to the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So it's the 245th birthday of America. So I was thinking about this a little bit, and I thought, you know what? If you're 80 years old, you've been alive for almost one-third of American history. If you're 60 years old, and I know that there are more of you, almost 25% of American history is under your belt, part of your life experience. And then let's cover the whole cohort. If you are 24 and a half years old, you've been alive for 10% of American history. It sort of frames things up with some significance. So let's pray together as we come to God's word, and we pray for God to move in our hearts and in our country. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we come before you today and we pray for the United States of America that you would help us as a nation to rise to the aspirations of our ideals, that you would help us, particularly the church, to be those who represent your character, your grace, your truth, your justice, your dignity, your humanity. And so, Lord, we do pray for our country. My guess is if we started filling in what we would all be praying for, we would all have different ideas. But you know, Lord, the heart and the fabric of our nation. You alone know our deepest needs. And so we open our hearts to you and we appeal that you would do healing and renewing work in our nation. We pray for our president and our leaders in Washington and those all around the country. We pray, Lord, that you would lead them into righteousness and truth and justice and a place of serving you, whether they are aware of that or not. We pray, Lord, for your goodness and glory and life, not only in our nation, but in your church as a beacon. We pray in your name. Amen. So it's our summer of Jesus, our summer of beholding Jesus. The world has never seen or known anyone like him. History has never had anyone that has impacted its sweep the way Jesus Christ has. He is utterly unique. He is fully God and fully man. He's the spotless lamb of God, the only one able and qualified to bridge the broken relationship between human beings and God. And so today we're going to talk about Jesus and repentance There are a lot of words in Christianity or religion in general that when you throw them out there, they may garner a host of different emotional responses. I think repentance can be one of these words. 
It's almost like a Rorschach test from a mental and vocabulary standpoint. If I say repentance, what do you immediately think? I think for a lot of people, the sense is I feel a sense of punishment or negativity or groveling or loathing. If I could pray that God would do something beautiful this morning, he would convert the word repentance in our minds and in our psyche from a negative to a positive from something that feels negative to something that is beautiful, from fear to joy, from punishment to relationship. And so hopefully we'll begin to make some progress in that way. Too big for the screens, but if you have a Bible with you or you have one on your phone, I'm gonna be speaking from Psalm 51 in a little while. And so I'll refer to it there. So if you just want to put a tab or put your finger in your Bible or queue up on your phone, Psalm 51, we're going to get there in a little bit. When I read a lot of history and a lot of biographies about Christians, many of the people you might call, quote, the great saints, I often read phrases like this when I read biographies or autobiographies. It'll be a phrase something like this. I was far from God and I was convicted and burdened about the state of my soul. You'd read something like that. I think of that in Charles Spurgeon when he reflected on his conversion of coming to Christ for the first time when he was about 15 years old. Note he was about 15 when he said, I felt far from God and I was concerned for the state of my soul. Samuel Johnson writes a lot of stuff like this and a host of other saints throughout history. But I've never seen any of that after the year about 1900. I'm not quite sure why, but I never see anything written that sort of articulates the faith in that way after about the year 1900. It would suggest to me that things were changing, the fabric of our national life was changing, the world was changing, I know it's not true, but it seems like before about 1900, people had this earnest cry to God for the state and the well-being of their souls. And it doesn't seem to be expressed quite the same way. So with regard to Jesus and repentance, let me read Mark 1.15. Of course, this is right at the opening of the Gospel of Mark. He says, this is Jesus speaking, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. In Luke 24, which is Luke's version of Jesus's great commission, that inspirational message to believers about the work that we should do to take the message of Jesus to the whole world, he says it, it says this way. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So if you're paying close attention, it's pretty easy to see that Jesus's ministry, his teaching ministry is bookended. It starts with repentance and it concludes with repentance. And everything that happens in between, all the demonstrations of the kingdom of God and the power of Jesus and the invitation to life that he gives us, it's all bookended with repentance at the beginning and repentance is the message that would carry this gospel to the whole world. Repentance is the bookends and all of the kingdom flourishing life that we're invited into 
happens in between those bookends. So it was the fall of 1982. I was sitting in the very top row of Carmichael Auditorium in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Carmichael at the time was the University of North Carolina's basketball arena. Billy Graham came to Chapel Hill and he spoke for five nights that week, Monday through Friday. I was not ready to say yes to Jesus. I was asking questions. A handful of Christians had asked me if I wanted to go with them to hear Billy Graham. And my honest thought was no, because you're going to hotbox me and corner me and make me feel uncomfortable or else slobber over me. And none of that feels comfortable to me. The problem was I wanted to go hear Billy Graham. So I did it sort of Nicodemus style, quietly on my own, slipping inside doors, hoping none of those Christians who had invited me would see me. I went on Monday night and Wednesday night and Thursday night. I didn't go Tuesday and Friday. I don't remember why. I literally made sure that I was in the back row that provided the least chance of being seen by those Christians. I remember looking down from the back row and Billy Graham was way down there. If you have listened much to Billy Graham, you know that whatever he preaches about, every single sermon he's ever given gets to the business end of our relationship with God. And every single sermon he ever gives will bring anyone who's listening to the place of standing in front of the cross. And then he will invite everybody who's listening to confess their sin, ask God's forgiveness, and invite Jesus into their life. No matter what Billy's preaching about, it's always going to the cross and it's always going there. So I was there those three nights, sitting in the very back row, literally had to kind of bow my head a little bit because the roof was angled like this. And the first night I remember Billy and he was getting to the business end of his evening and then he said, now pray with me. And I thought, you know, I've been to church, I can pray. So I bow my head and I start praying with him. When he was in the safe zone, I was fine praying along with him. But then he came to the place where he always does, where he says, and now God, I confess my sin to you and I ask you to forgive me through Jesus Christ. And Jesus, I'm inviting you into my life as Lord and Savior. I didn't know what it meant to do that but I did know that it was way too big for me and I wasn't ready for it. So I remember the first night, if you could put the brakes on with praying, I was praying along with him and then I was like, I'm not going there in the praying. Okay, so the next night I go hear him. I don't remember what he preached about. I just remember the business end of the praying every time. The next night I hear him, I'm in the back row of Carmichael Auditorium. Billy Graham is a way down there. He prays and he gets to, and now Lord, I confess my sin and I ask you to forgive me. And Jesus Christ, I invite you into my life as Lord and Savior. The second night I thought, 
uh-uh. I don't know the full implications of this, but if God is real, the implications of this for my life are huge, and I know that I'm not ready to do that. Not to mention it scared the pants off me. So that next night, I put the brakes on at the business end of the prayer. And then the third night that I went, I'm like trying to find the same seat, very back row. Billy's really little down there, a long way away. And he gets to the business end of the prayer and I'm like this. And I thought, "Uh uh-huh, I knew you were gonna get here tonight. I've been on to you now, it's my third night. (laughs) And I remember thinking, I'm not ready for this. But I also remember looking down because I was kneeling and I remember noticing my shirt going like this. And I thought, what is, what is that? And then I thought, quite literally, my heart was almost beating out of my chest. And then I thought, why is this happening? This must be a really big moment. God, what am I supposed to do with it? The whole thing was really unnerving to me. So for the third night in a row, I put the brakes on. I didn't pray the business end of the prayer with Billy. We'll come back to this in a minute. You see, what I knew without knowing it was that being invited to begin a relationship with God for the first time is to clear the decks of self, to confess the sin of my own life, to ask Jesus Christ to come in as Lord and Savior, and to begin this new life in a relationship with him. If we do this and it's real, it creates a crisis. If we do this and it's real, it creates a crisis because that crisis is what happens when we have a confrontation with the cross. When we have a confrontation with the cross, we are presented with Jesus who has died for our sins and his invitation is that we would lay down our lives to receive the life that he gives us. That exchange is the exchange of the cross. I didn't understand all that theology at the time, but I do now. I now know that when my heart was beating out of my chest, it was beating because of the confrontation of the cross. There's a lot in modern preaching that says, don't press people this way, it's gonna make them uncomfortable. Here's what I've learned. No cross, no Christ. No Christ, no conversion. No conversion, none of the real life that we're hungry for. So if we don't make this invitation to repentance clear, we're just being accomplices to leaving people hungry without the life that God really offers us. Believe me, when we're talking about repentance and the clarity of this, I know very clearly from my own life, it scared the pants off me, this idea of repenting of my sin and receiving Jesus. The Bible's way of saying it is to not call people to repentance is to leave us dead in our sins. That's the biblical way of saying it. In John 10.10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they, that's all of us, may have life and have it to the full. So when Jesus is calling us to this life, it's to the life that's really life. It's the life that we're hungry for. It's the life that is God life. It's the life that is new life, that is forgiven life, that is identity restored life, that is the hope of heaven life. 
but it comes after we have a confrontation with the cross. That confrontation with the cross scared me. Okay, switch gears for a moment. My wife Elizabeth is a painter. You've heard me mention this. You've been around Hope for a while. She's done all kinds of painting. Sometimes it's been crafty painting. Other times it's been more fine art, watercolors, and so on. When our kids were little, I remember Elizabeth painting some children's furniture for the children's bedroom. And so you'd have a little chest or a little chair or something, and she would do this beautiful job painting it, making it look all pretty. It'd be colorful, and it might have flowers on it, or it might have, you know, birds, or you, you get the picture, animals, something like this. She would take a very ordinary piece of furniture and she would paint it, make it look really pretty. Occasionally now she does it a little bit differently. She'll take old pieces of furniture and paint them to make them have a little more life to them. Here's the thought. It's going to be hard for me to articulate this. Without calling people a repentance, we're just painting them pretty coffins. I have this picture in my head. Imagine a coffin. I've seen many of them. I've done many burial services. You have too. Imagine a coffin painted with flowers and birds and everything on it. In its own way, of course, we could say, yeah, I get it. That could be pretty. But you understand the point I'm making. Without calling people to repentance, we're just leaving them in pretty coffins, decorated to look really nice. But we all know that inside a coffin is death. So Henry Nouwen, one of my favorites, writes this. He says, beneath all the great accomplishments of our time, there's a deep current of despair, while efficiency and control are the great aspirations of our society. The loneliness, isolation, lack of friendship and intimacy, broken relationships, boredom, feelings of emptiness and depression, and a deep sense of uselessness fill the hearts of millions of people in our success-oriented world. Brett Easton Ellis's novel, Less Than Zero, offers a most graphic description of the moral and spiritual poverty behind the contemporary facade of wealth, success, popularity, and power. In a dramatically staccato way, he describes a life of sex, drugs, and violence among the teenage sons and daughters of the super-rich entertainers in L.A., and the cry that arises from behind all of this decadence is clearly, is there anybody who loves me? Is there anybody who really cares? Is there anybody who wants to stay home for me? Is there anybody who wants to be with me when I'm not in control, when I feel like crying? Is there anybody who can hold me and give me a sense of belonging? Feeling irrelevant is a much more general experience than we might think when we look at our seemingly self-confident society. You see, what I've come to understand at this stage of my life is that every empty feeling is a longing for God. You see, I believe to the bottom of my core that every human being is hungry for God. And human beings want to talk about this hunger if they can trust that they can do it with somebody in a way that's safe and isn't going to make them feel steamrolled. Every human being is hungry for God. Ecclesiastes 3 says it this way, that God has made us with eternity in our hearts, with longing for eternity. We're all hungry for God. We may know it or we may not. But every empty feeling is a longing for God. Every grief and loneliness is the Holy Spirit whispering to us, there is a heart that can be home for you. 
And that eternal home is the place of safety and security, and it's the heart of God, and the home is heaven. I've come to really understand that we have primary longing languages. You may know Gary Chapman's book, The Primary Love Languages, where it talks about married couples and sort of the ways that we like to give and well, we like to receive love. I'm sure that we have primary longing languages. To take a stab at it, for some of us, that longing language is intellectual. For others, it's emotional. For some, it's experiential. For others, it's inspirational. There may be more, but I think those cover the biggies. If your longing language is intellectual, you're the kind of person who likes to go to lectures and listen to three-hour podcasts. If your longing language is emotional, you're moved particularly by songs and rom-coms and maybe even the occasional Hallmark movie. If your primary longing language is experiential, you're a person who's looking for whitewater rafting types of experiences and crazy mountain biking where your orthopedist should be on speed dial. And if it's primary inspirational, you're a person who's snapping a million pictures of sunsets. You get the idea. We all have a primary longing language. It doesn't mean we have only one of them, but we do have a primary one. All of these longing languages leave us hungry, and they'll move us to fill these places of hunger. And sometimes we do that in healthy ways, and sometimes we do it in ways that are not healthy. So here's a challenge. Do you remember that I said in the beginning that I read some of these great saints and they talked about a concern for the state of their souls, but after about 1900, I don't see any of this language anymore in literature. I think much of our modern Christianity is like traditional vaccines. I know it's risky to talk about vaccines today, but bear with me. Traditional vaccines gave you a tiny bit of the disease. Your body then fought it off to keep you from getting the whole thing. I know that the COVID vaccines are largely different than that, but traditional vaccines gave you a tiny bit of the disease so your body fought it off to keep you from getting the whole thing. Much of my concern with modern Christianity is that we're sort of acquiescing to this idea, which is don't, don't press people to feel challenged by this. That'll make them uncomfortable. Yes, and it will also leave them dead in pretty coffins. So much of our modern Christian teaching is giving people a small bit of it so that we don't get the whole thing. In 2 Timothy 3.5, the Apostle Paul says it this way, they will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. The traditional framing is that there's a form of religion without the power of religion. So you know in Jesus' day, when he was here and there in Capernaum, Jerusalem, and all that area of Palestine, there were many around Jesus who were either the crowd, the curious, the concerned, or the inspired. They observed his teaching and demonstrations of God's kingdom, but they didn't enter it. You can observe the kingdom of God without repentance. You can be curious about the kingdom of God without repentance. You can even place yourself alongside it without repentance. But Jesus' call was to enter it, and to do that is to repent. So we have different postures when it comes to repentance. So here we'll get a picture of this three chairs kind of environment. This chair is the one where our hearts have been open to God and we're facing God and we seek him and we desire him and we have our hearts open to him. 
This chair is the one where I mentioned a few weeks ago, we're sort of alongside of God and we're sort of along for the ride with God. I mentioned it's a little bit like we're in the car and we've got Jesus in the car with us, but we're sort of having fun taking selfies and putting them on Instagram saying, look at Jesus and me in the car, but I'm driving even though the windows are down and our hair's blowing in the wind and it looks really fun. I'm still driving, I'm still in control. It's fun having Jesus here, but I'm still feeling empty. This one can be really confusing because there's a bit of Jesus without the whole reality It's a little bit like the vaccine. We got a small dose without getting the full life that he offers. This one, of course, would be the person whose back is turned to Jesus. And this person, well, at least it's clear. And sometimes clarity is really helpful. But the option of the position of our hearts and Jesus' invitation is to turn and open our hearts completely to him. So the voice has helped us with this. What we'd look for would be like a full three-chair turn. I know it's four, but here it's three. And that in that turning of the chair, our hearts are coming to this full place of being open to him. And that happens with repentance. So here's the beauty. Repentance is the key to joy. Repentance is what opens the door to the life that Jesus Christ offers us. Repentance, quite the opposite of being some groveling, punitive experience, is the confrontation with the cross that ignites the new life that the Holy Spirit offers us through the crucified and resurrected Jesus. Gary Thomas said, the Christian spiritual life doesn't begin with hope. It doesn't begin with chastity. It doesn't even begin with obedience. It begins, according to the Gospels, with repentance. And that repentance is likened to 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's take a quick look at Psalm 51, because Psalm 51 is the model picture of repentance. You may know this account. This is King David. It's generally understood that this is his outpouring prayer of repentance after he had killed Uriah, taken Uriah's wife to be his wife, and it was a messy, nasty affair, and he came to see the truth of his own depravity in bringing it about. In Psalm 51, we have this picture. It says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. He goes on to say, wash away my iniquity. Then he says, I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Verses one through three have this sense of expressing his desire that God would remove his sin and wash him of it. Then we get to the next batch of verses three through six. Sorry, four through six. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. It's breathtaking to read this, how significantly it juxtaposes to most of the modern apologies we see in our culture. Most of the modern apologies in our culture are, I'm sorry that you were offended by. David is pointing the clarity of the visibility to his heart, and he is not avoiding or evading any of that clarity. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. 
You are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. I was sinful at birth from the time my mother conceived me. And here we begin to see that the Bible presents us a certain picture of human moral positioning. The Bible says we're born sinful. A humanist culture says we're born beautiful and good. And if we just get the right conditions, all that beauty will flower and flourish. These are two very significantly different views about human nature. If we are born good, then just let's get the right political and social circumstances together and all that goodness will flourish. The Bible says we're born with sin as our core nature and God is rescuing us from this. Now we could talk about those two streams for a long time, but the one that is generally we're born good says, if we're just given the right conditions, we'll see a flourishing utopia breaking out everywhere. I'm still waiting for it. The scripture says we were born in sin and God has come to redeem us from this place to give us this new life. And so David clarifies this reality of our nature and our problem. And then he goes on in verses 7 through 12 to pray these prayers that you would cleanse me, that you would clean me, that you would heal me, and that you would restore me to joy. So do you notice how relational this praying is? This is not a punitive prayer where David is simply saying, God, I fouled up. Just let me off the hook. Just restore me to a position on the right side of the ledger. There's so much relational fabric in this praying. And what he's saying is, God, my heart with you is what matters to me. And I see that my heart has opposed your goodness and your holiness. Would you remove it? Would you wash me of it? God, here is the truth of the matter. That, in essence, is David's confrontation with the cross, and he doesn't avoid any bit of its searing light. And then he says, would you cleanse me, clean me, heal me, and restore me to joy in my relationship with you? I think one of the most important things for us to do when we're praying prayers of repentance is to ask God, remember, remove the whole punitive negativity and make this about this flourishing relationship, to ask God, God, what is that thing in me that leads me to this behavior? What is that insecurity, that sin, that fear, that identity deficit that leads me to this behavior? Will you help me to come see it as clearly as you do so that I can begin to walk with you in the healing you want to bring to me in this place that is causing this behavior? This is how we begin to truly grow in this relationship. So once we have this relationship with Jesus, repentance is not so much about getting on the right side of the ledger. You're already on it. Jesus has made that clear and eternally secure. Repentance then becomes this return to the flourishing, intimate, healed relationship that God has for us in Christ. So finally, just one little sidebar to avoid. Repentance is not penance. Penance tends to be a more Catholic-oriented idea of something you're going to do to work off your sin. Jesus Christ has done all of that. When we say that we have trusted Christ for salvation and forgiveness, it's not Christ plus anything. It's him alone. 
Penance becomes this false religious way of trying to look serious about my sin, but the fact of the matter is it turns the equation back on me because it says I'm going to work off the penalty of my sin. Jesus has done all of that for us. So the idea is that we would flourish in the gift of the forgiveness that Jesus has given us and will continue to give us. You see, when Jesus said, behold, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news, it's important to remember that he's inviting us into the kingdom of God, not the regime of a tyrant. And this is how many of us have struggled with it. When we hear this invitation to repentance, it feels like the regime of a tyrant. It's not. It's the kingdom of God. It is the one place where we can find the fullest life and love that we have always longed for. So ironically, penance will continue to do its soul-killing work. It will tell us that we have to self-flagellate. We have to keep going through punitive cycles of self-loathing because we have failed again, yet again. And Jesus' repentance is a life-giving gift. So when we pray truly and come to repentance, we realize that sanity and repentance are partners. To repent before God is to align your life with what is true, true of God and true of yourself. In Daniel 4, when Nebuchadnezzar praised himself, he went insane. When he praised God, his sanity was restored. When Isaiah encountered God in Isaiah chapter 6, he was undone. When he repented, he was saved. Repentance is not only essential in our relationship with God, it's also bringing ourselves into alignment with his truth which means it's not only life-giving, it's also sanity-giving. If we could turn repentance from this negative emotional association to the beautiful gift of God, to the door to joy, we're given this new invitation from self to God, from death to life, from fear to love. So there's a beginning point, just like Billy Graham said, and if you're at a place where you know that you want to begin this relationship with him, I'm going to share it with you just like Billy did with me. And I'd encourage you to say a word of prayer and say, God, I confess my sin to you and I ask you to forgive me through Jesus Christ. And Jesus, I invite you to come into my life as Lord and Savior. And if you've been a Christian for decades, the prayers of repentance also have a beautiful life-giving place of the healing work of God, the restoration of the joy of our salvation, and the beautiful gift of full identity that we are children of God. So we're going to come to the close of our message. I'm going to offer about 30 seconds for silent prayer, and then I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to put a general prayer of repentance and confession on the screens, and I'll invite you to say it with me. We'll say it all together as a way to participate in this. About 30 seconds of praying quietly, and then I'll invite you to stand and we'll pray together.
Okay, please stand and join me. This prayer may be familiar to some of you or new to others. These words are an invitation to a cleansing joy. Let's pray together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.